Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Well, if you have a Bible and you would like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to Joshua chapter 3 uh, and uh, chapter 4. You can follow along with me in your own Bible, in the Pew Bible, on your smartphone, or it's also provided for you in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along with me there, you can do so. I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. It's great to have you with us. My name's Sean Slate. I'm the pastor here, and we're so glad to have you because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing this morning, especially on Labor Day weekend. You could be traveling like many people are right now, or you could be detoxing after an amazing weekend of college football, and it's not over yet. We have a game tonight, LSU, and we have a game on Monday, which is everyone's really excited about. The Clemson Tigers are playing in Canes, Georgia Tech, uh, Yellow Jackets, the Rambling Wreck will be wrecked. But anyway, nobody really cares. Or you could be at home like packing up all your seersucker and your white box and putting them away for next season. But you're not doing any of that. Uh, you're here with us this morning and it is so great to have you because the reality is that there really is nothing better that you could do with your time than worship Jesus, consider his claims upon your life, and to think about the beauty and the kindness of his salvation. And so I really do want to thank you for joining us this morning. Welcome to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer's a church, and what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God, and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God. He's the Messiah, and he's entered into the world to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, we gather together to worship him so that we might learn to rest in the love that God has for us in Christ. And as we rest in his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together and watch football and eat food and do different things together. But what we really love to do is read the Bible and pray together so that we can remind each other of the great love that God has for us in Jesus. And so as we rest in his love and as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors who are here in Urban and University Knoxville, and hopefully in some way it would spill out into the entire earth, right? That's who we are. We're a people who are trying to learn how to love God, and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that, we've just begun this new series entitled, Great is His Faithfulness, Reflections on the Book of Joshua. Now, as I've said for the last few weeks, this is a really tough book. Uh, This is a book about transition. It's a book about loss. It's a book about failure. It's it's a book about having courage uh, to move on with hope in the world. And as we go through this book, what you'll see is that there's a lot of conflict. There's war. And at points, this book just feels incredibly culturally distant. And at other times, some of you all might say, it just feels so Old Testament. But my hope as we go through this book is that you will see over and over again that God is faithful. 
right, that God is faithful. And so this morning, what I want us to consider is the memory of God, right, the memory of God. So with that in mind, let's look together at Joshua chapter 3 and 4. It's a lot, uh, so uh, I know those, many of you like to snuggle up with somebody as we read. I'm just going to read portions so your snuggle time will be cut in half, all right? So we'll start in Joshua chapter 3, uh, verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. And so they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priest who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here's how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe of, uh, from each tribe of man, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord... The Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. And the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 1. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come what do those stones mean to you then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over the Jordan the waters of the Jordan were cut off so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Uh, Verse 18. And when the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal, And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? 
then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me now for the teaching? Heavenly Father, uh, we are thankful for this, your word, that, that you are a God not hidden, nor are you silent, but you are one who delights to reveal yourself to your people. And it is our prayer now that as we attend unto your word this morning, that you and your kindness would attend unto us, that we might see lovely things of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of my favorite movies is entitled Memento. And I'll admit that this is a dark and gritty movie. It, technically, it's neo-noir. Uh, but it's a fascinating movie about memory. And in the movie, the main character is this guy, or is played by this guy named Guy Pierce, And he plays this character who's suffering from a short-term memory loss and the inability to create new memories. And he is looking for the person who attacked him. And he's looking for the person who killed his wife. And because he can't remember anything, he is subject to this intricate system of Polaroid pictures and tattoos all over his body to help him remember information that he cannot remember. And so he carries around a stack of Polaroid pictures uh, that have all these notes on them. And then he's tattooed uh, his body all over with just reminders about life, things like eat. Uh, never trust uh, anyone, answer the phone, notes can be lost, hide your weakness, consider the source, memory is treachery, and remember Sammy Jenkins. And throughout the movie, uh, every time someone comes up to him, every time someone asks him a question, every time something happens to him, he looks back over all these little mementos in order to try to remember what's going on. And I think that this movie is really on to something because, as we all know, it is easy for all of us to forget. Uh, we all forget things like our keys. We all forget things like our, our wallets. But if we're really honest, we know that it's very easy for us to forget those most important things about life. And we need these little mementos to remind us of what is good and what is true and what is beautiful. We need little reminders in our life of what is most important. And that's the point of this text. God is calling his people to remember him. And so this morning, we're going to think about two things. We're going to have two points this morning, so it's going to be a little different. We're going to have two points. And the first point is this. Remember God. And the second point is like it. Remember God. And so point one is going to be remember God, and then point two is going to be remember God. We're going to start at point one, and then we're going to go on to point two. So let's begin with point one, remember God. We'll move on to point two, remember God. Point one, remember God. As we come to this text, it's a really amazing story. You'll remember that 40 years prior to this event, God uh, delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And according to Exodus chapter 12, that deliverance began on the 10th day of the first month. And on the 10th day of the first month, that was the Passover. 
And on the Passover, you probably remember that God passed over uh, the firstborn children of Egypt in judgment. And as he passed over in judgment, at the very same time, he was passing over the children of Israel, the fir- his firstborn, he was passing over them in salvation. And that deliverance then culminated as the children of God stood on the banks of the Red Sea. And God in his kindness parted the waters so that they could pass over on dry ground into the land of God's promised rest. And now what's interesting is here we are 40 years after that great event. 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness. And I want you to notice this little detail. Chapter 4 Verse 19, on the 10th day of the first month, exactly 40 years after the exodus began, the exodus is coming to an end. The deliverance is almost complete. The people of God are about to pass over into the promises of God in order that they might enjoy him and dwell with him and love him. And I think this is amazing because what God is doing here is he is repeating what he did in the past. And by repeating what he did in the past, he is reminding his people that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That God is the same. That God does not change. And this is really important for us to remember because we so easily forget it. Because when we start trying to think about what is God like, we define him not by what he did yesterday, today, and forever, and what he promises to do forever. But we evaluate him by today and our circumstances. And though our circumstances change, God remains the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. I would assume, this is important, because I would assume that many of us have had what somebody might call like a mountaintop experience. And uh, we heard about Jesus. And we heard about him for the first time. And he was lovely to us. He was beautiful to us. And there was no doubt in our mind that he was good. There was no doubt in our mind that he was powerful. There was no doubt in our mind that he was present. We'd seen his hand in our life. We felt his nearness. We knew his love. And yet we went down the mountain and we went down into the valley where life happens. And down in the valley, what happens? Trials and temptations begin to grip us. Suffering and sorrows begin to overwhelm us. Pain and brokenness are all around us. And most of life in the valley is just mundane. It's just normal. It's just getting up and eating and going to bed and getting up and eating and going to bed. And and the mountain begins to collapse into the valley. And the warmth on top of the mountain gives way to the coolness of the shadows. And surely this would have been the experience, not only of us, but also of the Israelites. I mean, their their parents had, had seen the power of God as his hand parted the Red Seas. And and they had seen him leading them through the wilderness, and they had eaten the manna from his very hand. And yet day after day after day, they lived normal days, raising their kids, trying to find food trying to get to the next place, trying just to do the next thing. And as they're about to enter into the land, they're trying to remember, I've got to remember God. Is he good? Is he what he used to be? Is he the same? And as they're entering into a land filled with all these other gods, is he the true and living and powerful God? And so God says, look, I want you 
and I want your children to remember me. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to separate the waters of the Jordan just like I separated the waters of the Red Sea. And what I want is someone from each of the 12 tribes of Israel to go down into that river and to pick up stones and to carry those stones across the river to Gilgal and set up 12 stones of remembrance, 12 stones, 12 Ebenezers, so that you and your children in the world will not forget that I am God. And and look at what it says in in verse 6 and verse 21 of chapter 4. When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. And what is really lovely about this is that God in his kindness is building catechesis into the land. In other words, what he's doing is he's building these teaching tools into the land in order to remind them that God is the living and true God and he is the only God that can save us. And that's the point of the stones. That whenever they would see the stones, they would be reminded of God and his story and his power to work salvation. That when they saw the stones, their eyes would be lifted so that they might see and remember him. And he says this explicitly in verse 7. Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And what I want you to see is that these stones were meant to remind them and their children and the world of what God had done that he had parted the waters, that he delivered his people, that he'd been faithful to his promises, that he'd brought them into the land of his promised rest. But the stones aren't just to tell us what he did or what he's done. They're also meant to tell us who he is. Uh, Look at verse 21, chapter 4. When they ask, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know... Israel passed over this Jordan on the dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. As the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up uh, for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth will know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. That you may fear the Lord your God forever. And see this section, it's not just what, or what he did, but it's who he is. You see, he's the Lord, all capitals, and we've talked about this before, meaning that he is the covenantally faithful God. He's the God who has made promises to his people, and he promises to never abandon what he has promised, to always do what he has said that he will do. And this covenant-keeping faithful God is not just a covenant-keeping faithful God. He is also your God, and he's the God of your children, And he is the one who saves you and delivers you and he will save you and he will deliver you. And he is not only that God who has done those things, but he is also the God of all the earth. And he sets up these stones saying, I want the whole world to know not just what God has done. That he's not one of many gods who does things in the world. But I want you to know and I want the world to know that he is the living and true God. The all-powerful God who is faithful to all that he promises. 
And so here's the point. What he's saying is, I want you to remember me. I want you to remember me. And I want your children to remember me. And I want the world to remember me. Right? That's what those stones were all about. Uh, now that feels so Old Testament. That feels so culturally distant. I mean, none of us crossed over the Tennessee River, picked up rocks, put them on the deck of Calhoun's and ordered some ribs and then said, what are these ribs and what do these stones mean? Uh, but uh, we all should have memorials in our life that make our children ask, what do these things mean? There, there ought to be things, there ought to be traditions, there ought to be liturgies in our life that make our neighbors and our children ask, what do these things mean? You see, there ought to be things in our life that exist just to stir up curiosity, just to start conversation, so that you can tell the story of Jesus. And, and that's part of the reason we want to cultivate this corner because if we think about our lives, we know that we're always forgetting him throughout the week. And we need something coming up out of the dirt to remind us that God is bigger and more powerful than we are. But not just for us, it's also for our neighbors. We live in a culture that's forgetting God. And one of the things we really desire is for our neighbors and the students at the University of Tennessee as they go around 17th and Highland on their way to a party or on their way to class, to be reminded that God is good and that God is here and that God does not abandon his children. We want the world to be asking, why would a community be putting money into a building when everyone knows that God isn't real? Because we know that God is alive. And we want our children to say, why do we have to go to that place every week? Why do we just keep reading the Bible? Why do we keep singing these songs? What's the deal with that cross on the wall? What's Easter all about? What is Christmas all about? What do these things mean? Then we can tell a story. Because we have a story to tell. And let me tell you the story. God made this world. And God made this world good. And God loves this world that he had made. And he loved it so much that he wanted to share it with us. And so out of the overflow of his love, he created humanity. He put humanity in the goodness of that garden so that we could enjoy his great gifts. And so that as we lived in this garden, we might tend to it. We might care for it. And we might be reminders to the world and to one another that our creator is good and does beautiful things. And in that garden, we are supposed to love one another and we are supposed to care for one another and we are supposed to delight in the presence of God. And yet sadly, for some reason, we turned away from God. And we turned away from his good purposes for the world that he had made. And we started to use this world for ourselves. We started to exploit this world for our own good, for our own financial well-being, for our own ego. We started building our own little kingdoms. 
And we started using our mouth not to proclaim the glories and the goodness and the beauty of God, but to proclaim our own glory and to make a name for ourselves. And in doing this, we started to use one another. We started to hurt one another. As the great poet Gerard Manley Hopkins once said, Each mortal thing does one thing and the same. Deals out that being indoors each one dwells. Selves goes itself. Myself it speaks and spells. Crying, what I do is me. For that I came. He's saying one thing that is true of all humanity. What I do is me. For that I came. For myself I live. And when we live for ourselves, we then begin to hurt one another and we hurt the creation, this beautiful thing that God has given to us. And we hurt ourselves under the tyranny of this self-belonging. And we hurt this God who made us and to whom we belong. But here's what's fascinating. When we turned away from God, he did not turn away from us. Instead, this God turned towards us and he began to pursue us and he provided for us and he drew near to us. In fact, he didn't just draw near, he became one of us. And he bore the brokenness and he bore the shame and he bore the sorrow and he bore our sin. And that is why he died on the cross. And by dying on the cross, what he was doing was he was turning away that anger at us, turning away and abusing the good things that he had given us. And he turned away his anger in order to cover us with his love. And then three days later, he rose from the dead to live again. And by rising from the dead, he shows us that he is the all-powerful one who defeats even the great enemy of death. And by showing that he's the all-powerful one, he claims us as his own. And then he gives himself to us in his spirit to, to make us new, to begin conforming us more and more to who he always intended for us to be, that we might be a people now who love one another, who love him, who love this world and steward it for his good. And now we are to use our mouths to proclaim him and to proclaim his goodness and his love and his glory. And we do this so that the world might see that our creator and our savior is good. And this is why we go to church. Because we forget the story. This is why we go to church, to proclaim the story. This is why we sing the songs. This is why we love the cross. This is why we pursue certain things and abstain from other things. Because we belong to God. And God is God and we are not. And we actually think that's good. Because we don't know what is best. And he does. And so here's the point. Remember God. Right? That's the point. Remember God. And that leads to the second point. Uh, remember God. Uh, and this might be a little bit simplistic. But the reality is that there are so many things in society that are asking us to forget God. Uh, you remember those first days in which you saw a sunset, and you were just captivated. And it drew you out of yourself to something much more beautiful. You remember those days when you saw the rainbow, and you're like, that's amazing. And it drew you beyond yourself, past the rain, past the, to a new world. You, you remember those first times that you, that you went camping, and you slept out under the stars, and you felt so small, but a part of something so big. 
And we're told to forget all of that wonder and just think about Newtonian equations. We think about our thoughts. We used to say, you know, I think, therefore I am. And now we just think about neurochemistry. We think about love that makes us feel so alive and we're supposed to explain it away as natural selection. And when it began, when things were good, we knew that we were the beloved creations of God. And through the scientific revolution, we began to say, no, we're not beloved children, creations of God. We're just creations of science. We're creation of our biology. We're creation of chemicals. And today we've turned that in on itself in the psychological revolution in which now we belong to ourselves. We're not the chemical reactions. We're not beloved creations, but we are our own. We're our own creation and we belong body and soul and life and in death to ourselves. And so life has become something to discover and life has become something for us uh, to define. Life is all about self-discovery, not wonder of who God is. I'm reading this beautiful little book by a guy named Alan Noble. It's beautiful because it's Tiffany blue, and that's my favorite color. Uh, but it's also a good book. And, uh, and so he makes all these, y'all don't care. Uh, just inviting you into my neuroses. Uh, but anyway, it's, I picked it up because I judged it by its cover. But anyway, stop, go. All right, here we go. Uh, in this book, he makes this like some insightful comment, I think. And he says this, implicit in our society is the promise that you can become a fully realized human if you, one, accept that you are your own and belong completely to yourself. Two, you work every day to discover and express yourself. And three, you use all techniques and methods perfected by society to improve your life and conquer your obstacles. And if you do all of this, you can achieve happiness and you can arrive as a fully formed human being. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying our culture is telling us, society is telling us that we belong to ourselves. And our existence is our opportunity to justify our existence and to become ourselves. And so now, at this cultural moment, we have the privilege or maybe the burden of justifying our existence and making life work on our own. But here's the problem. I think if we're honest we would all say, we don't really know who we are. We don't really know who we are on our own. And I think if we were honest, we would all say, uh, we don't really know what is really good for us. And if justifying ourselves this is, is this ongoing process of self-discovery, then he says we are always journeying and never arriving. We're always journeying and never arriving. And this is why I think most of us are so exhausted and why so many of us just want to quit. Now, that might be think it's a lot, but here's really the point. Everything is asking us to look away from God and to look to ourselves. And this is why we're always asking the question, what job is going to make me the happiest? High school students, this is why people are telling you, you got to pick the right college because your college is going to help define you and your college is going to help make all of your dreams come true. And the weight of that decision is just too much. The weight of it is just too much. How much money is going to make you happy? 
What desires do you have that you aren't fulfilling and what is the implications of that? How many likes on the social meds do you need to validate your existence? And the problem with this is all, any answer you would give to these questions today will change tomorrow. They're never satisfying. You're always traveling. You're never arriving. I think there's this uh, really humorous scene uh, towards the end of Steve Martin's movie, The Jerk. And uh, if you've ever seen the movie, I'm not saying you should go watch it, but if you've ever seen it, you'll know that he starts with nothing. He gains everything and he loses everything. And at the end of the movie, he's getting kicked out of his mansion, and he's clothed in that classic bathrobe and black socks. And as he's being kicked out of his house, he's looking around, he's like, I don't need any of this. I don't need any of this stuff. I don't need anything. I don't need you. As he passes by this ashtray, he says, except this. This is all I need, this ashtray. And then as he's walking, all I need is this ashtray. And he passes by a tennis racket and this paddle game. All I need is this ashtray and this paddle game. And then he passes by the remote control and this remote control. All I need is an ashtray, a paddle game, and a remote control. That's all I need. Oh, and these matches. All I need is the ashtray, the remote control, the paddle game, the matches, and this lamp. Right? All I need in this chair and all I need in my dog. Right? And what's really humorous about it is like, you live with nothing, you live with everything, you say you need nothing, and then you just accumulate more and more. It's just, a, it's just constantly traveling. It's just this moving target. And if we are left to ourselves to find happiness and identity, it's always moving. There's never any rest. And this is why the book of Joshua invites us to remember God. Because God is the one who leads us to himself. And it is in him and him alone that we can truly find rest. And I want you to see that God roots this deep in his instructions to his people. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Okay, so he's saying, I want everybody to look at the Ark of the Covenant. You need to keep this distance, about 2,000 cubits. Okay, so for those of you from Kentucky, that's about four furlong. Because uh, of the horses. Anyway, it's funny. Uh, but anyway, for the rest of us, it's a little over uh, 400 yards. Now, why, why keep the distance? Notice what the text says. In order that you may know the way that you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. And this is amazing because what he's saying is that God wants everyone to see him. He wants everyone to see the ark so that they can follow it. Now, if you don't know what the Ark of the Covenant was, the Ark of the Covenant was this golden box and inside it had the Ten Commandments, which represented the covenant of God. And, uh, and, and the priest carried that ark, that golden box, on these poles. And then on top of that box, there was a lid. And on the lid were these two cherubim with their wings. And cherubim, they're not angels. They're a different spiritual being. But they have wings and they look like all the creatures of the earth. And these two cherubim are sitting on top. And on top of the cherubim, on top of their wings, is the throne of God. And God sits on top of the ark. And so what God is saying to the people is he's saying, look, I want everyone to look at me so that you might follow me. And why do they need to follow him? Well, the reason is because they didn't know the way. 
They didn't know the way to live in the land. They didn't know the way to live in the world. And is that not true of us? How are we going to live in this world when we do not know the way? Where are we going when we do not know the way? And God says, look to me, and I will lead you. Therefore, follow me. That's what he's saying. That's the point. And that's why when we get to the New Testament and we get to a passage like John chapter 14, Jesus tells his disciples that he is going to the Father in order to prepare a place for us so that where he is, we can be with him. And listen to Thomas's response. Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And what does Jesus say? I am the way. Follow me. If you go through all the Gospels, every time Jesus calls the disciples to himself, he doesn't say, think this, then do this, then think this, then do this. What does he say? He says, follow me. And this is really important because uh, we all live in this world and we do not know the way. We do not know the way through the world. We do not know the way to God. And so God invites us to look to him and follow him. And this is important because the whole world is telling us to follow different things. At the height of the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment told us to follow truth wherever it leads. But then as now, the question is this, how will we know what is true in order to follow it? And so we used to say, well, just follow the experts. Follow those who are smarter than you. Follow your teachers. Follow your leaders. Uh, follow the money, right? Follow the science. Now we've turned all of that following in on ourselves. Because what we've seen is that the experts and the leaders, they exploit us. Uh, people that we love and promise to love us, they betray us. So we're left to ourselves. And so who's going to love us any better than us? And so we say, follow our hearts, follow our desires. But is that really good advice? Do we really know what is good for us? Right? Do we really know the way? Uh, people, people over and over again are saying, if you think, look at psychology, they're all saying it, human beings regularly desire and pursue self-destructive experiences. And if you're a counselor, you sit with people day after day and you recognize the ways in which they are self-sabotaging the very things that they desire. And you sit with people who have no idea how to move forward. And then at night, you're in your own room and you're asking yourself, why do I keep making these bad decisions? Why do I keep doing these things that I don't want to do? And maybe the prophet Jeremiah was right. Maybe the heart is deceitful above all things, and it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, who can understand it? The Bible tells us who can understand it. God can understand it. God understands our heart, and God understands his world, and God's heart is for his people, and God has proven himself over and over and over again to be one who is faithful to his promises, to be one who loves his people, and he is the one who steps down into the flood to make a way for his people to pass over into life of his promise and his rest. And it's amazing, as you read the book, there are these two places in the passage that mention 
that the Jordan River was at flood stage. And many people say, well, it's just to show the power of God. And it is, but it also reminds us of something more. It's at flood stage. What does that remind you of? It reminds you of the flood back in Genesis. And what happened during the flood? Well, God's judgment rained down upon the earth. His his judgment flooded the earth. But more importantly, God provided salvation through the flood of his judgment. And how did he provide salvation? Through an ark. And he does the very same thing here in the book of Joshua. The ark steps down into the flood waters and it holds back the flood so that God's people might pass over and receive all of his promises and enter into his promised rest. And here's what's amazing. God does the very same thing hundreds of years later. Once again, on the 10th day of the first month, on the day of Passover, on the cross, God, Jesus, the one who sat atop the ark, who sits upon the throne of God, stepped down to earth. And he stepped down into the flood of God's judgment on the cross and he held back that judgment so that God's people might pass over into life with him. And God is inviting us to remember him to remember everything that he did on the cross, but not just what he did, but who he is. He is faithful and he is good and he's lifting our eyes to see him once again. That with great joy, we might follow after him. That's what our God is like. And so he tells us to remember him. Remember God. That's the point of this text. And that's why we come to the table. We come to this table as is written on the table in remembrance of him. The one who bore our sin, the one who held back the judgment of God on our behalf, the one that we follow through this life, through death, and into life with him forever. And we do this week after week after week. We set the table week after week after week as a memorial because we forget. We get fixated on so many things. And Jesus at this table is calling us to come back to him and to see him, to lift our eyes that we might follow after him. Remember God.